Welcome to the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Now, here's your host, John Murphy. Hi there, welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. This is our podcast. We do this almost every week, although we're going to be going a little bit intermittently in the future. We'll talk about that in a moment. My name is John Murphy. I'm the play-by-play voice of the Buffalo Bills. We're here to talk, to talk about Sullivan's. We're here to talk about the beer and the Bills, right? Great combination. The beer is Sullivan's. Uh, Sullivan's Brewing Company in Kilkenny, Ireland, the makers of Sullivan's Maltings Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, Sullivan's Black Marble Stout, available all over Bill's country, certainly where the Bills are, and expanding almost daily all over the eastern United States. Look for it. Ask for it. Sullivan's Beer, Sullivan's Irish Gold, Sullivan's Maltings Red Ale, or Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. Look for it. You'll enjoy it. We're going to talk about beer today with a special guest, the man behind a brand new brewery in Buffalo. Bright Smith Brewing on Main Street in Williamsville. Dave Schutte of the Schutte Hospitality Group in Buffalo. He's also the man behind the Creekview Restaurant in Williamsville, right next door to Bright Smith Viewing. And, of course, he now is the owner of Oliver's in, uh, on Delaware Avenue in Buffalo, Oliver's Restaurant, one of the fine dining destinations in western new york for decades now we'll talk with dave shooty about the brewing business he's getting into it now about the restaurant business how they survived during covid and the outlook for the future dave shooty joins us in segment three just a couple of segments away and in just a moment we're going to talk with bill barnwell a longtime friend of mine he writes for espn.com he really rose through the ranks covering pro football, started out at Football Outsiders, doing analytics, analyzing numbers, talking about numbers, went to the Grantland uh, website for ESPN. Now he's graduated to ESPN.com. Bill Barnwell is a guy who thinks about pro football a lot. Uh, He actually thought about it last September, thought enough of the Kansas City Chiefs and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to make that his prediction for Super Bowl 55. He was right. The Bucs and the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. Bill Barnwell called it, but we're not going to talk with him about predictions. A little bit we will. We're going to talk to them about the Bills, their offseason ahead. We're going to talk to them about coaching changes in the NFL and where the league is headed. Bill Barnwell from ESPN.com scheduled to join us. We'll talk about the upcoming offseason. It is here, and it get, it comes quickly. We're about a month away from the start of a new NFL league year. It'll be right around St. Patrick's Day, middle of March. At that point, teams can officially sign free agents. Teams can make their moves, and at that point, they're also four or five weeks away from the NFL draft. So they've got some decisions to make, all these teams, including the Buffalo Bills. Bills have an important offseason coming up. As successful as they were last year, they have almost more important decisions to make in the upcoming season. And most of them deal with personnel. What kind of personnel do they want? I'll tell you what I think. What do they need personnel-wise? Number one, not a running back, not a tight end. The number one personnel need for the Buffalo Bills, I believe, is a pass rush specialist. They need someone to get after the passer. All you had to do was watch the Super Bowl to see what an advantage the Tampa Bay Buccaneers had by hurrying uh, by hurrying uh, the Kansas City Chiefs quarterback and getting him to make throws when he wasn't quite ready to. Patrick Mahomes was under the gun all night long in Super Bowl 55 because of Tampa Bay's pass rush. That's the one thing the Bills really did not have uh, much of this season, and certainly in the AFC Championship game they had a very limited pass rush which allowed Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs to dominate the Bills in the AFC title game. I think that is need number one, whether it's an outside linebacker, whether it's a hybrid type of guy, whether it's a defensive end, they need someone who can get after the passer, and they need it right away. They may have to go to free agency. They may not have time, development time, to invest in a good pass rusher, right? The window is open now for the Buffalo Bills to win a Super Bowl. They've got to get pass rush help. That is need number one. Yes, they have other needs, including offensive line. They've got to figure out who's coming back, who's leaving. Feliciano may leave. Uh, the right tackle, Williams, may leave in free agency. They've got to make sure that people, who's going to be where, who's going to line up where, uh, what do they do with everybody. That is an important offseason consideration for the Bills, offensive line. Yes, they need a running back. They need a dynamic type of running back, I think, a guy who can catch passes out of the backfield. Uh, It's not a crying need. They can do without it. They did without it this past year and were quite successful offensively, but they can definitely use a good running back. And they can use a tight end. Not giving up on Dawson Knox, but they need more than what Dawson Knox was able to provide them this, this past season. So that would be my list of priorities. Pass rush number one. Number one, pass rush. Number two, offensive line help. Number three, running back. Number four, tight end. And then keep going. They have 
of course, the quarterback. And we're going to talk with Bill Barnwell about that. And Josh Allen getting set for a contract extension maybe this offseason. They have the quarterback. They have to figure out how to make the quarterback work under the salary cap. But I think the, they're under the capable leadership of uh, Brandon Bean. He's done a great job in his previous offseasons. I anticipate he'll do it again this offseason in getting the Bills, uh, the personnel they need under the cap, and getting them ready to go for another successful season. We'll see. All right, we're going to talk more about football with our next guest, Bill Barnwell, NFL writer for ESPN.com. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with John Murphy. My guest is an acquaintance of mine for several years now. Back when I was doing radio, he was always one of our best guests, and I'm sure he'll be great in this podcast today. <laughs> Staff writer for ESPN.com, Bill Barnwell joins us. He covers the NFL on a on a pretty extensive basis. Bill, thanks very much for coming on with us. We appreciate it. John, my friend, that's a lot of pressure to be one of the best <laughs> guests, but I will I, I will do my utmost. You're always one of the best, one of the easiest to talk to, so I'm excited to hop on. I appreciate that. Hey, did you, did I read this right? Did you really pick way back in September the Chiefs and the Bucks in the Super Bowl 55. Did you pick that way back then? Okay, so I did, wow. but but I picked the Chiefs to beat the Bucks comfortably. So I only get half credit uh, by the time the Super Bowl finished. Well, that's impressive though to, to identify the Bucks. Obviously, they had Tom Brady by mm-hmm. well last March or so, but did you really thought he would make that much of a difference? Get them to a Super Bowl, huh? Well, I'll tell you what, this is one actually the fun mathematical quirks of the NFL. Maybe maybe fun is the wrong word for, for a nerd like me. It was interesting because the Bucks last year were a team that had a really good defense by the advanced metrics by DVOA. I think they were fifth in, in DVOA, but they were 29th in points against per game. And so that's a big gap. You kind of look at it and say, okay, well, if you're the fifth best defense in football, how can you be the fourth worst scoring defense in the league? And you look at it and you saw, well, they faced the most drives in football because their offense either scored or turned the ball over immediately. They faced the worst average starting field position in football. And their quarterback, Jameis Winston, threw, I think, six or seven pick sixes, which get added to the defense's total, even though it's not the defense's fault. So when you accounted for all that, the Bucs were actually really good given the circumstances. So you figure with Tom Brady coming in, the interceptions go down, which they did. The drives go down, which they did. The field position improves, which it did. They were in much better shape to be the defense we might have expected. So they were eighth in points against this year. And then, of course, a great run during the postseason. I guess at this point, we should let you explain what DVOA yes, means. Sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. I mean, I know that this has been the basis of much of your work over the years, but many of our listeners might not know what that means. DVOA, what are you referring to? Yes, very fair. So that is the Football Outsiders Efficiency Stat. Uh, what does it stand for? That's a, can I remember that off the top of my head? Like <laughs> defense adjusted value over average. That's been around for about 15 years now. Basically what it does is just say, okay, for every situation in the game, after accounting for the down, the distance, the game situation, like the score and the time left on the clock. What should we expect the offense to do? What should we expect the defense to do? And then how did they actually perform? So basically, if you have a DVOA of 20%, well, you were 20% better than league average play after play, situation after situation, after accounting for all that stuff. So, you know, no, no stat is ever perfect. No stat's ever going to tell the whole story. And I think there are Bill's examples, you know, Josh Allen that comes to mind when it comes to the stats that, you know, uh, obviously he proved wrong this year. But that's the best stat I think we have in terms of understanding how a team is performing. So it helped us sort of look at the Bucks and sort of pick them out as a team that might improve dramatically uh, in 2020 in terms of their record, even though their underlying performance said, hey, they were pretty good even last year. It was defense, I thought, that made the difference for the Bucs in the Super mm-hmm. Bowl. It's a week and a half uh, ago now, but in Super Bowl 55, I thought Tampa Bay's pass rush, their ability to put pressure on Patrick Mahomes was the difference in that game. What, what do you mm-hmm. think, Bill? 100%, John. You're absolutely correct. And I think, you know, we had seen other pass rushes get pressure on Mahomes. Even I wrote about it in my preview. You know, this is what the Bucs might do. This is how they're going to get pressure with four men. Um, if anything, you know, I was almost more... I almost thought it would be harder for them to get pressure with four, but in the years past, or maybe in games past more than years past, Patrick Mahomes had always been able to run away from that pressure. He is so unique and so special that really only him and Josh Allen, I think, are the two guys in the league who can, who can sort of create for themselves in the same way that uh, maybe Russell Wilson, actually. So maybe, maybe those three guys, I would say, they can create for themselves and be their own best offensive lineman because they can create um, open throwing lanes for themselves by running away from free pass rushers. This game, because the Chiefs had so little up front, they were down four starters. Um, you know, it was so overwhelming. Really, I thought Patrick Mahomes was incredible in this game, but was facing just 
a, a defense that just totally, totally prevented him from looking at anything. I mean, there was no point in even having an offense uh, in terms of, you know, the game planning in terms of the plays for most of this game, because within a half second, Patrick Mahomes would be running for his life. And in years past, we've seen him kind of do that and then eventually settle and find a player. But the Bucks were so good at not just getting pressure initially, but then creating the pressure consistently, getting the pressure and never letting him settle uh, to get in a place where he can make a comfortable throw to an open receiver. So I think um, it was a great game plan from Todd Bowles. And I felt like, you know, even Mahomes at some point couldn't hold up against that sort of pass rush. I watched the Super Bowl with my two uh, young adult sons, Bill, mm-hmm. and one of them said to me, uh, "What's what are the Bucks doing that the Bills didn't do two weeks ago in the AFC Championship game? What do they have that Buffalo doesn't have? They have a pass rush. That was missing from the Bills in the championship game and throughout most of the season, I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the Bills, you know, they were solid, but they certainly weren't dominant. And I think that you know, over the course of the year, there were frustrations about certain guys. I know Trent Murphy didn't have the best season. There were really, even from what I remember, frustrations about Jerry Hughes at some point during the year, even though I thought he played very well, all things considered. But, I mean, this is a, a Bills team where I think nobody had more than five sacks, and, and I think Hughes of the team with 11 knockdowns. And you can do a sort of pressure by committee thing. And, and I think the Bills very clearly in how they've constructed their roster under Brandon Bean have wanted to build their defensive line around depth as opposed to adding one or two starts. I mean, they are maybe the deepest line in football in terms of being able to run out six, seven, eight guys week after week who are useful players, not stars necessarily, but deep, talented football players. And I, I feel like that's a smart way to go about it. But when you play against a guy like Mahomes, you might need those top tier guys. And the Bucs have two in Shaq Barrett and Jason Pierre-Paul. They have Vita Vea, who was a, a first-round pick, who's been very impressive. Of course, the Bills have Ed Oliver, but Vita Vea has been, I think, better than Ed Oliver so far as a pro. They have the Dominican Sioux, who has been uh, very effective. Isn't the guy he was 10 years ago, but still a, a very valuable and very effective pass rusher. But I'll tell you, even late in that game, it was guys coming off the bench who were making plays. You know, it was guys... Um, who comes to mind for me? Steve McClendon, a guy who was on the Jets, who's a basically a nose tackle who came off the bench to pressure Patrick Mahomes on a fourth down. So I think that part of it is that just the Chiefs were so beat up up front in this game. They had Eric Fisher in the AFC Championship game. Their, their left tackle who's very good. He went down with a torn Achilles late in that game, and that hurt the, the Chiefs dramatically because there was nowhere to count on. There was no sort of thing that could say, okay, well, let, Eric Fisher's going to be okay at left tackle. We don't have to help him. We don't have to worry about him. You know, we can slide the protection away from him. Um, there was no safe harbor for the Chiefs in this game. But then on top of that, I think, you know, this is a Bills team that went out and signed Mario Addison. Thinking, okay, this is a guy who's been a, you know, a nine, nine and a half sack guy over the last few years. If we can get that, we're in good shape. Well, he had five sacks. Good, but not necessarily, you know, a, a dramatic difference maker on a week after week basis. And I think, you know, across the board, the Bills maybe were hoping for a little more from each of their linemen and ended up getting good seasons, but not necessarily great seasons out of a lot of those guys. Looking ahead, Bill, with the Buffalo Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes. Um, and we know that the free agency is still to come and the draft, but mm-hmm. are the Bills, uh, should the Bills consider themselves viable challengers for the uh, Chiefs uh, ruling in the AFC? What do you think? Of course. I, you know, I, I don't think there's anything about this roster that would make you think they can't compete. Now, I, I do think this is going to be a tough offseason because this is the first year in a few years the Bills are going to have, you know, more players they want to keep um, then maybe the, the, the cap ability or, or, or the resources to keep them around. Um, you're going to have guys who I think are talented players who might want to go for bigger contracts and look at in Buffalo. I think there'll be, um, you know, there'll be opportunities for players to, um, you know, get bigger deals elsewhere. Um, you know, I, I think about someone like a John Feliciano where he was very good after coming over um, and a guy who, you know, made 3.6 million last year. Well, someone wants to offer him six, $7 million a year. The bills are going to be in a tough spot. I, I could see him being worth that. I think he is a guy who is extremely underrated, but you know, do you want to go above and beyond to pay him? I think that's a tough spot because now in addition to the sort of outflow of veterans who are, who have been around for a team that has $4 million in cap space. Well, Matt Milano is a free agent, and you figure you want to retain your homegrown guys. Jermaine Edmonds is coming up, I think, a year away from free agency. Um, and the big name, of course, is that guy under center, Josh yeah. Allen. He's yeah. he is, you know, uh, deserving of a raise. And we've seen NFL teams in years past, whether it's Jared Goff, whether it's Carson Wentz, Deshaun Watson, 
typically when you have a great season in your third year, you get paid. So Josh Allen, you would expect is going to get a massive extension from the Buffalo Bills. So making all of that math work is not impossible. And doing it in a year where the cap is expected to be, you know, $25 million less than we expected before the pandemic started, that's really tough. The Bills can make something work. They're not going to be bereft of talent, obviously. But I think this is the first year where the Bills are going to miss out on players, whether it's keeping players or bringing in players who they would have wanted to keep um, because of cap constraints. Because the last few years, it just was not as big of an issue. Hey, Bill, I'm interested in your thoughts on Josh Allen. Uh, if memory serves, you were not totally sold on mm-hmm. Josh as a first-round pick uh, sure. back in 2018 and his progression, uh, you know, he had to take some steps for a couple of years. Where do you think Josh is now? How good can he be? What do you think his ceiling might be? Oh, boy. I mean, you know, I was very wrong. I, I, will, I will preface everything by saying that, I, you know, Josh Allen was not a great quarterback at Wyoming. His first year, you know, Showed some spectacular stuff, but was pretty bad. Year two, a lot better and made major strides. Maybe that should have been a sign, but a guy who still struggled with his accuracy, a guy who, um, you know, got in his head at times, played hero ball at times when things were tough. And I think that Texans game in the postseason was a classic example, right, of, you know, you could see everything good and bad about Josh Allen in that game where he was phenomenal for stretches, looked to be in control, was making smart throws, and then of course, late in the game, did collapse a bit, did sort of get in his head about, you know, making big plays and made some mistakes. I, I kind of figured that's what we would get from Josh Allen this year. We get some more improvements after adding Stefan Diggs, but still a guy who was inconsistent. That did not happen. He was awesome. He was phenomenal. I mean, his accuracy is leaps and bounds improved. I, I cannot think of an NFL quarterback who has improved as much with his accuracy, with his footwork, with his stability as Josh Allen has. I mean, this is a guy who was missing wide open receivers last year. And, you know, he was, you know, it was incredible seeing how many throws he hit in motion, under pressure, you know, without even looking at the pass rush, changing his mechanics. I mean, he was so much more in control of being a quarterback this year. Now, his ceiling to me is a top two or top three quarterback. To me, he was the third best quarterback in football this year. Um, you, you can't rule out him making further strides. Obviously, he's an incredible athlete. He's everything you'd want from, uh, from a pro quarterback um, and a guy who can make big plays. So I absolutely think that his ceiling is at this level, you know, right alongside Mahomes as one of the best quarterbacks in football. Will he be this good next year? I, I think he'll be in that ballpark. You know, naturally, you might see some decline just because, you know, the Bills got a healthy season from their star receiver, Stefan Diggs. Um, the offensive line played very well. You know, that stuff might, might pop up here and there. But I think the biggest thing is, you know, Brian Dable is coming back for another season as offensive coordinator. I think that would have been the biggest problem for the Bills is replacing him and and sort of having a, a new relationship build between an offensive coordinator and a and the starting quarterback. But obviously, those guys are super tight. Them coming back for another year makes me think Josh Allen is more likely to be the guy we saw in 2020 than a guy who maybe takes a step backwards. So to me, I think, you know, Bills fans have every right to be, uh, you know, to ask me to eat crow because I should, because I didn't think Josh <laughs> Allen was going to be this guy. And I think it's awesome. You know, it's always nice. You're always going to be wrong sometimes. Nothing wrong with being wrong. You know, I'm happy with what I laid out, happy with the arguments I laid out. I watched the tape. I looked at the numbers. But you know what? Football is a fun sport. And sometimes football surprises you. And Josh Allen absolutely surprised me. Bill Barnwell, our guest, staff writer, ESPN.com, covers the NFL. I want to kind of take you around the league a little bit. Mm-hmm. And jo- the Bills are set at quarterback with Josh Allen, obviously. But uh, there has been and maybe is more to come quarterback movement this offseason. I want to take you first to the the trade. The Lions uh, send Matthew Stafford to the mm-hmm. Ram for Jared Goff and, and um, a number of draft picks. What do you yeah. make of that trade? And it was the price too steep for, for Stafford. What do you think? I think so. You know, I, I, I think, how can I put it? I, I think it, it was steep, but I think the Rams, given their circumstances, felt like this was the last step they needed to take to win a Super Bowl. And maybe it will be. And, you know, Matthew Stafford is a great quarterback, even given the circumstances he's had in Detroit. But I look at that Rams roster. They haven't had a first round pick since Jared Goff, you know, so a few years ago. They are a team that is very top heavy. Um, very and they count- won't have one for a while either, will they? It, that's the thing. Yeah, they won't have one for a while either. So a- as you're building your roster, you know, it's one thing like when the Bills traded for Stefan Diggs, that's totally reasonable. They had a ton of talent elsewhere on their roster. Trading a first round pick for a veteran is the perfect time. And I thought that it was a great win-win trade for both the Bills and the Vikings. But as they trade for Matthew Stafford, you have so few picks to fill, fill out your roster with in terms of your first rounders, which is your best chance to get a star on a below market deal that 
you know, I think that's just a top heavy team. They don't have a very good offensive line, major holes on defense. And they had Brandon Staley, who was greatest defensive coordinator this year. I think they were number one uh, defense in football, but that's probably not going to happen next year just by sheer variance. And on top of that, you lost Staley to the Chargers for your defensive players or free agents. You're not in great cap shape. You're going to have to give Stafford a new deal. Um, you know, it's it just, I think Stafford is going to make their quarterback situation better, but I don't think he gets them to a Super Bowl because the holes elsewhere on the roster that they can't fill in part because they made this deal. And I think that given how much they paid with two first round picks and Jared Goff, who they thought was their franchise quarterback as recently as a year ago, unless they make it to the Super Bowl and Stafford is an MVP candidate, they gave up too much. It's almost as if the Rams are saying, this is it. We got to yep, make this Super Bowl now, right? 100%. They're all in. <clears throat> all right. Another quarterback, Carson Wentz. Expected to be traded away by the Eagles. Are you surprised, uh, first of all, that the Eagles are ready to quit on Carson Wentz after, you know, just a couple of years? And two, are mm -hmm. you surprised that they may, there may not be that much interest around the league in Carson Wentz? Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I've come back and forth on this, John. I have really thought about it. From the Eagles side, the money is why I think they're so concerned. They're, basically, if they keep Carson Wentz on their roster through the fifth day of the league year, I think, so basically the, you know, the middle of March, they're basically locked in him for two years. And when you have a situation where your quarterback is, you know, very upset, doesn't want to be there, um, has not been the happiest person over the past few months and, you know, led you to fire your coach and Doug Peterson. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they said, okay, you know what? We're cutting ties and, and we're going to get the best available offer. And we're going to take that trade, whatever it is. I, I, I think eventually some team will convince themselves he's worth a first round pick. And I think that's probably fair. Um, I mean, this is a guy who, you know, in 2017 had a incredible season. That was like, he was the, the, the guy hitting on six at the blackjack table who got a five every time, just incredible on third down, incredible in the red zone in a way that, you know, like one of the top five performances, the last 10 seasons in both categories, that's going to be tough to pull off again. So, but the guy in 2017, or sorry, in 2018 and 2019, even if he wasn't an MVP candidate, was still a pretty good quarterback. And a team trading for Wentz is not going to have to absorb as much money. So to me, I think I look at teams like the Colts, like the Bears, um, you know, who, who have teams that can win now with the right quarterback. And I know the Colts, the reports have been two second round picks is the farthest they've gone. I, I, I still think a first round pick is going to get this deal done. And I do think a team is going to eventually offer a first round pick for Carson Wentz because I think it just makes too much sense to bring in a guy who, again, was if not an MVP candidate, to me, a, a low-end top 10, maybe top 12 guy uh, in 2018 and 2019, where you figure, okay, don't surround him with four backup offensive linemen, maybe have better receivers around him. He can be a guy who takes you to the postseason. Bill, is Deshaun Watson on the market, or will he be back in Houston? I mean, I don't know if he's on the market, but I think he wants to be on the market. And we've seen with guys in the past like Carson Palmer, comes to mind for me in Cincinnati, uh, Trent Williams, the star left tackle for Washington in 2019. If a player decides, hey, I've made plenty of money, which Deshaun Watson has, he got a signing bonus last year. Um, if, if, if they don't want to play for a team, they're going to force their way out. It might take a year, but they're not going to play for that team unless they absolutely positively want to. So for Deshaun Watson, I, I think if he decides I'm going to push this as far as possible. I'm not going to show up for camp. I'm not going to show up for the season. Eventually, the Texans will trade him. I don't think the Texans want to trade him. I don't think the people who are in charge there want to be on from Deshaun Watson. They don't want to lose this sort of public fight. But if you have a guy who doesn't want to play for you and you know he, he's just ticking time away at home while you have no quarterback and you're missing all your picks that you traded to build a team around this guy, at some point, you need to give in. So to me... I don't know if it happens this, you know, this spring or whether it happens next year, but I think Deshaun Watson has said, I'm done with this organization. And if he has, well, then it's going to happen at one point or another. Trade is going to happen. It's just a question of when. It's happening more often, uh, players demanding trades in the NFL. It's similar to, it's becoming more similar to the NBA. Um, mm -hmm. Is it a trend, Bill? And is it a dangerous trend, do you think? No, you know, I really feel like it's been happening for a long time. Um, I think that uh, we've seen... You know, I think Carson Palmer comes to mind for me, where Carson Palmer demanded a trade a decade ago, and that has not been a trend. I think with with Deshaun Watson, given the unique circumstances, it's not like Deshaun Watson just woke up one day and said, eh, I don't like Houston, you know, the kind of muggy, you know, I don't want to be here anymore. You know, think about all that's happened in this organization. You had 
an owner now, of course, deceased and Bob McNair say that I don't want the inmates running the asylum, which which many players on the team felt like was a, you know, a, a, a racially coded comment. Um, you have his son take over as GM as owner and empower Bill O'Brien to make a, a series of moves that were just absolutely disastrous, where every single time Bill O'Brien made a trade, you know, it wasn't like it was one person. You know, everybody said, hey, what are you doing here? This is crazy. And of course, those moves turned out to be disastrous. Um, we saw contracts handed out that made no sense. We saw um, Sean Watson not be a part of the organization where he, you know, he felt like he was a, had a meaningful voice or was being more or less like that, just that he was being lied to. And I think that, you know, what is true in, in sports, in the NFL, in the NBA, in every sport is that your best player is part of your organization. And with Deshaun Watson, he makes more than any coach in that organization. He makes more than the GM. He is more important to the fans of that organization than the owner, Bob McNair. And so I think that it, it, people are becoming more aware of that. I don't think that lends itself to trades necessarily. I don't think you want to have a situation where you have your quarterback, you know, telling you who to pick in the draft or um, having, you know, having it be uh, deciding who your head coach is. But I think you have to be honest with them. I think you have to ha- empower them to be part of that conversation where they feel like, okay, even if I don't get everything I want, even if I don't get anything I want, at least my voice was heard. At least I'm a valuable part of this organization. Because remember, this is a guy who you know, the Texans had take a bus from Houston to Jacksonville because he couldn't fly. That's how that's how hurt his ribs were um, to, to have him go play in a game against the Jaguars. who They did not need Sean Watson to beat the Jaguars in that game in 2019. That tells you how committed he's been to the organization. So to have... The organization come back and you know lie to him about what the process is going to be like, what how his voice is going to be uh, impacting the organization. I I think that's really telling. So I think to me, you know, most organizations aren't going to have those issues in the way that the Texans have, and so you're not going to see it pop up elsewhere around the NFL all that frequently. Hey, but before I let you go, I want to ask you about <clears throat> a couple of coaching moves, mm-hmm. uh, big offseason uh, for coaching moves that is, you would think, complete. Urban Meyer in Jacksonville with his misstep over the last weekend about hiring a conditioning assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like he's ready to fall into the trap of a, a big-time college coach who, who just doesn't get it, the kind of scrutiny, the kind of uh, mm-hmm. inspection he would be under in the NFL. Is that fair to say? I think so. I mean, I, I, you know, think Urban Meyer's been a great college coach and certainly on his record, on his resume, deserves to have an NFL opportunity. I think the Jaguars are, are a great job to take, obviously, adding Trevor Lawrence. But I think this was a wake up call. You know, this was a, a situation where I thought he could or maybe he thought he could finesse his way into hiring uh, this assistant. And obviously that was not the case. The, the scrutiny in the NFL is very different from the scrutiny at the college level, especially when, you know, it's typically local media who are going to be the majority of people you deal with on a day-to-day basis in, in, in college football. So um, I'm happy that, that, you know, the situation changed. I don't think it was the right hire. And I think that we also saw the players make an impact here. You know, I think it's very different when you have professional players who, um, you know, are going to make their voices heard about a possible hire as opposed to, you know, college athletes who are stuck. Um, this is an organization with the Jaguars that was a disaster the past few years. I mean, the team that almost made it to the Super Bowl. I mean, beat the Bills in the postseason, came within one bad call of making it to the Super Bowl, and pretty much everyone from that era is gone because none of the players who were there wanted to keep playing there. Guys like Jalen Ramsey, uh, Yannick Ngakwe forced their way out because they felt like they were not in a situation where they were surrounded by competent people or surrounded by people who wanted to treat them fairly. The Tom Coughlin era did not go well there. So um, I think this was a case where Urban Meyer had to bend to the will of his players, had to bend the will of the you know, the the criticism that he was facing. And I think that, you know, if he takes it as a wake-up call and, and re you know reconsiders his approach in some ways, I think he'll be fine. But if he, you know, is stubborn about things in the future in the same way, I think we're going to see more and more problems pop up in Jacksonville. And, and a question about the Jets, Bill. Um, Robert Sala uh, apparently will stick with uh, Sam Darnold. I wonder if he feels he can't do any better than Sam Darnold at this point, or if he feels like, oh, yeah, I'm not really tied to this guy. I can cut him if I need to. What do you think? Yeah, there's something tough here because the the Bills, oh, sorry, the Bills, the Jets have to pick up Sam Darnold's fifth-year option, which in years past was not guaranteed. But after the new CBA, the fifth-year option for these players is fully guaranteed. So with the Bills, obviously, picking up Josh Josh Allen's fifth-year option, no big deal. They're going to negotiate a new contract anyway. If they can't get a deal done, hey, having Josh Allen for another year, no one's going to complain about that. But for the Jets and with Robert Sala, do you want to pick up Sam Darnold's fifth-year option and guarantee him something north of 20, 25 million for 2022 
let alone 2020, having him for 2021. Um, I, I feel like they are probably in a situation where they need to negotiate some kind of deal with Sam Darnold. They can say, okay, we'll give you one more year as a starter. We'll bring you on if we don't love any of these other college guys, but we have to be able to get out of that contract after 2021 to not be locked into you for 25 million in 2022. So, um, you know, that could be tough. Sam Darnold might not want that. He might want a fresh start. Who knows? But, um, you know, I think the Jets have to have that option on the table because, again, if you don't like any of these guys, if you don't think that uh, Justin Fields or, you know, Trey Lance are franchise quarterbacks, you're going to set your franchise back more by taking one of those guys at two than you would by just, you know, sort of hoping one of them work out. I mean, Sam Darnold does not have talent around him. He has not had a great offensive line. He's had miserable receivers. And nobody in the league is proof that you can improve with the right guys around you more than the guy in Buffalo who they play twice a year in Josh Allen. So I think the the Jets are, you know, I think you're right to say they're not tied to Darnold, but I think they have to be at least open to keeping Darnold around if they're not in love with any of these quarterbacks. Hey, Bill, the last thing I have for you, um, NFL just completed, you know, they managed to get in 256 yeah. regular season games in the full postseason. Are they, are they now emboldened saying, hey, we did it without a bubble, we can do it again? Or are they thinking, phew, we just got through that one? You know what I mean? I, I wonder how they approach the future. I mean, nobody knows what the coronavirus situation mm-hmm. will be in a month or two, but um, they showed that they can get it done without a bubble. Do they just go ahead and do that again, do you think? I think so. Yeah. And I think it's a credit to the players. I mean, think about how many players had to be, you know, had to do the right thing week after week, after week, day after day um, to keep themselves safe, to avoid catching this, um, to, to, you know, employ best practices. And there were hiccups here and there, but even the biggest one, the Ravens hiccup was a strength coach getting it and not reporting it. I mean, you know, players were incredible under the circumstances. I think we're, you know, the media and of course we're part of it is always, we're always, you know, very quick to report on players, you know, having off-field issues, some of which are more serious than others. You know, whenever a player goes out and goes to a party, like Tom Brady going out and getting drunk uh, on the boat during the Super Bowl, we love talking about that. But I think we have to credit these players for doing such an incredible job of, of keeping themselves safe, keeping the people around them safe. And, you know, I think that sort of responsibility um, makes me think that the league is in good shape because even if they do have to go into a bubble, not into a bubble, but into a, a similar situation next year where players are getting tested constantly, um, you know, I think there, there's some confidence they can pull it off. So um, I, I have to give a ton of credit to the players. And I think that um, I wouldn't have expected the league to play a full season and the Super Bowl on time without any hiccups or without, without having to cancel games and push games back until a, a week 18. And they were able to pull it off. So I think, um, you know, if you can do it this year, you'd figure things are going to hopefully be better next year, where it would be easier to do it in 2021. Bill, we thank you for your time today. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. We, we should keep in touch more. I thank you for joining us today in the podcast. John, anytime for you. No problem. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with your host, John Murphy. Got a very interesting guest to talk with on this segment of the podcast. He is the president of the Shooty Hospitality Group in Buffalo. Runs three area restaurants, Oliver's on Delaware Avenue, Creekview Restaurant in Williamsville, and the brand new Brightsmith Brewing Company in Williamsville. David Shooty is our guest. David, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Good morning, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Hey, um, let's start from the back first. Uh, Brightsmith, your newest venture, the, the the brewing company. You've been open a little bit less than a year, I guess, right? With the- Actually just celebrated our uh, first anniversary yesterday. Excellent. Well, congratulations. Happy anniversary. February 10th. Yeah. As a guy who's a, a student, you are a student, obviously, and a very successful restaurateur. What drew you to opening a brewery? What about a brewery and, and, how, and how does it fit into your restaurant uh, uh, group? You know, why a brewery at this point? Sure. Well, uh, a couple of reasons. One is I think the, um, the brewing industry is, is still uh, quite viable, especially in the Buffalo market. Um, and we had an opportunity. I've owned Creekview Restaurant across the creek now for 25 years. And uh, when I was approached about that property um, being uh, available, I kind of jumped on it. When I walked through the back of the property and I saw this beautiful back parking lot they had, I kind of thought, wow, that would be a really cool beer garden. Um, something different than, than Buffalo really has. And then the two buildings kind of spoke to me and said, you know, you know, Williamsville doesn't have a brewery. Um, the village doesn't. Um, and with that, my, my group, my partner, uh, Ross Warhol and myself, he's my chef and partner down at Oliver's as well. Uh, we came up with this idea and 
I think the idea of the brewery kind of fit the market in Williamsville as well as Western New York. We're getting great response from everyone. Um, but the addition of a really cool menu to go with the craft beer, I think was an important part of, uh, of the success of Brightsmith. Obviously the location on the Creek, uh, was paramount as well. So I think that the trilogy of those three things, uh, coming together, uh, has proved quite successfully in a, uh, an odd year, uh, to say the least. Tell me about um, so, the, the menu for a brewery, and in particular, what you strive to do at Brightsmith. What, what has to be special about a menu, a food menu at a brewery? Yeah, to me, it had to be appropriate um, match for craft beer. Uh, so I immediately thought of, you know, wood-fired pizza. And uh, so we're doing Neapolitan pizzas in our, our oven we got from Italy. Uh, and then the things that surround the pizza would be obviously, you know, great salads, great vegetarian items. Um, steamed clams, uh, pretzels with our own house-made beer cheese and, and mustard, uh, things like that that are shareables that are, you know, a group of two to six or ten can come in and have a few different things um, to start, maybe share a couple pizzas and then uh, a few desserts and obviously a, a bunch of beer. So, And let's talk about the beer menu. Uh, you said you have about a dozen different uh, beers uh, on the beer menu there. And, and it's not – is it just for – consumption at the brew pub or do you uh, sell off-premise too yeah our, our mission to start out a we only have a 10 barrel uh system which is relatively small in the in the, in the industry um but big enough to produce a fair amount of uh of beer but the focus was to just brew our own beer in-house now i do have it at my other restaurants uh in addition to a couple of uh, friendly places around um, in the city as well. But uh, our, our focus was not to go to distribution right away, but to build our brand, build our craft, and, and really just push the, the brew pub concept of uh, having the beer garden and uh, you know, the, 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 beer, the brew pub on the other side. So, How would you characterize Braidsmith? What kind of beer do you specialize in? What are your, your most popular uh, uh, beers that you brew? Yeah, so uh, it's a wide range. Of course, IPAs are one of our favorites. Um, but our, our mission was not to... Uh, go after the, the high ABV uh, IPAs that you can have one or two and, and then you have to leave. We're going a, a lot lower on the, on the alcohol content. For instance, our Billy Hayes New England IPA is a 5.2 or something. So, um, you know, it's a real drinkable, uh, fun, uh, approachable beer. And I, like all of them, uh, and our Will's Pills, a traditional lager uh, is our other flagship beer. And then, you know, we kind of uh, sprinkle around from there. Um, we have a Heffy Bison on that's been really well received. Some of our seasonals, uh, such as our Oktoberfest, uh, we had a, did a French Saison in the, uh, in the summer, which was really well received. So uh, kind of a, a wide variety, so a little bit of something for everybody type of thing. And then we sprinkle in a few uh, uh, guest caps with friends um, around the town mostly, um, and then uh, kind of rounds it out. So we get a little bit of everything. Uh, on the guest caps, you were telling me you, you've had the uh... – Sullivan's on tap. I, I know I've had it at, at Creeks at uh, Creekview, but you're also going to put it in the uh, in the brewery after a little bit here, right? Yeah, uh, at Creekview have the um, the Irish Red Ale, which I yeah. think fits uh, really well. And you know we have a, a beautiful nitro stout called Walk the Dog that we brew in house. And I thought to uh, put in the Sullivan's line uh, to put another nitro stout in and put your uh, uh, the stout on uh, from Sullivan's. Hey, you mentioned something a moment ago about the your your lineup of beers and and try i think you're indicating that you try to keep beer as you said drinkable or some people call it sessionable that the the high alcohol alcohol by volume content isn't necessarily what most beer drinkers are looking for is that true uh i believe that's the trend uh, and that's coming from um my partners and um consultants that i've worked with uh looking and studying the beer industry and and and, and the direction it's going um obviously we've evolved for a hundred years and, and, or more, obviously, uh, but in the last, uh, 15, 20 years, there's been a lot of great pioneers in Buffalo that have, uh, found good niches in our market and, uh, nationwide though, I think, uh, you know, people really want to enjoy more than, more than one or two. I think maybe the younger crowd, um, would prefer to have a higher alcohol content. Uh, but we're trying to appeal to the village and, uh, the outlying areas of Western New York to try to draw in a larger population of people. So, David, I want to take you through some of your other properties and, and let's go, I guess, in reverse chronological order from when you acquired them. But Oliver's is a is a landmark sort of iconic white table restaurant in Buffalo. Talk about that and why you chose, what were you, 13 years now or eight? Uh, no, I opened in 2013. So it's oh, been eight years. 
Yeah. yeah. How's that gone? And, and what can you say about Oliver's? You really did a, a major renovation inside there, huh? Uh, we did actually have another one coming in July to refresh the uh, banquettes and the bar top and uh, the rug and all that stuff. So, um, you know, I've done a few like and Henry Garino, who uh, iconic uh, mentor and restaurant tour here in, in Western New York, approached me, you know, maybe uh, nine years ago. And, and uh, it was an opportunity that I really I kind of uh, fell in love with because of my background in New York City and California and, and working in more the fine dining side of uh, <clears throat> the industry and uh, working with a great wine list and, and the opportunities that the catering company uh, that is associated with Oliver's had as well. So it really appealed to me and it was the right timing for uh, for both Henry and I to, to make a deal. And here we are, eight years later. Going strong. About, a year, about a year and a half ago, I had dinner in the private dining room in the back with uh, my friend uh, Andy Cappuccino and his wife and a couple of other family members. Really a memorable evening. It is it can be. It, it struck me that night. Oliver's can be kind of a transcendent, uh, bigger than Buffalo experience, I think, sometimes. huh? Well, that's what we try to go for. Um, you know, Oliver's has, you know, many arms of uh, uh, many breaths, I should say. Uh, everything from doing a Shen dinner uh, with our good friends, Andy and Helen. Um, actually, we have one coming up in April. Um, tasting menus, obviously, are, are uh, something that the kitchen staff loves. Uh, Ross and Chris and his team. Um but we also appeal to the, the, the North Buffalo crowd and, and people sit at the bar and have a steak sandwich and a, and a fresh pasta dish, which we just added this past year. Uh, we're making all of our in-house, pastas in-house now. So uh, that's been really well received. So it's not just a fine dining. It's not just special occasion, although it's, uh, it's going to be a busy weekend with Valentine's Day, which is great. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we, we try to appeal to a number of different uh, likes and desires. And tell me about Creekview on Main Street in Williamsville. I had lunch there uh, maybe three or four months ago. It remains a, a great, uh, not casual, but a, a comfortable place. Uh, they have lunch or I'm sure dinners as well. Yeah, uh, celebrating our 25th anniversary in May. Um, and I credit that one to my father, God rest his soul, uh, who told me about it being for sale uh, from his other really good friend, uh, who you probably know as Fred Stanfield. Sure. Um, and. Freddie and uh, his gang used to go in there all the time and uh, got to know, you know, the, the staff there and heard about it uh, possibly being for sale 26 years ago. And um, my dad told me about it and uh, was a great uh, opportunity for me and jumped in. And here we are 25 years later doing great. It's an amazing portfolio of restaurants, David. Tell me about how you got involved in this. As a teenager, you were working in kitchens and working in restaurants, right? Yeah, that's right, John. I mean, I, I just had a, a an affair for fine dining and, and good food, I guess, better way to put it. Yeah. And I often had to cook for myself. I cooked for my mother and um, through high school and uh, my friend uh, Nello Booty, who was the chef out at Brookfield Country Club back in the, in the 70s and 80s, uh, told me about, uh, if you want to be a chef, uh, go to the Culinary Institute. And he wrote me a recommendation at the time. And, um, you know, almost right out of high school, I went to the CIA and, and then uh, followed up my career from there with uh, uh, an education at Cornell and did the hotel program there, um, which brought me to a number of places, both in California and New York City, and then back to my hometown. Yeah. You trained as a chef at CAA, right? I mean, was that your original yeah. intent to be a chef, a cook? It, it was. It was always my passion. It still is to this day. I, I really enjoy, you know, working with the chefs and, uh, you know, tasting things that they're creating and, and having my little input. Uh, it, I think it helps them to, um, to, see things uh, and from another light, another angle. Um, so I really uh, am still passionate about cooking and I still do it at home uh, quite often, but uh, not as often as I'd like to. But. What do you cook? What's your specialty? Uh, honestly, I love uh, steaks and uh, pastas and veal dishes and, uh, and getting into a lot of vegetarian uh, dishes as well with my wife. She loves, she loves, you know, salads and, and different vegetable preparations and things, which is really unique. How does your experience at CIA and as a chef, how does that kind of inform your role with the, the Shooty Hospitality Group and, and managing and running these restaurants now? Well, I, I think the, uh, the training I had in the kitchen gives me uh, the ability to talk and walk with everybody uh, from the front of the house and back of the house uh, to our dishwashers who are, are the, the, the fabric of what, what makes us and uh, all the team I can, uh, I've done every position there is in the industry, um, uh, from starting off as a dishwasher. And actually I started as a bus boy to believe it or not. And, uh, I, I told the, uh, the owner, I said, I was 16 at the time. I said, I, I want to learn how to cook. He goes, well, if you want to learn how to cook, you got to go in the kitchen and be a dishwasher and then we'll train you over there. 
you know, my friends all said, why are you going to go from busing to dishwashing? It's going backwards. I'm like, right. I don't care. I just want to get in the kitchen. So that's how I started off. And, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, it is history. That's right. All right. Let's get to uh, recent history. And uh, uh, the last year now, the uh, impact of the uh, quarantine and, and the COVID impact, uh, simple question, but how has it affected your businesses, your, your three restaurants? Oh, obviously, it's been detrimental uh, to uh, volume and, and the staff, I think, is my, my biggest concern. Or having to lay them off back in March uh, was the hardest thing I ever had to do. Um, we were excited to bring them back in June to what capacity we could, we could get. Uh, the Oliver's catering side has probably been hit the, the hardest because of the, the weddings and all the other thing, um, events that we do, uh, we weren't able to do last year. Um, so, but we had a decent summer everywhere. Unlike our friends, maybe in New York City and Chicago, who literally have been shut down since last March. You know, we at least had uh, a, a little bit of breathing room in June through, uh, through November. Um, and then that was probably right before the holidays, the next hardest time I had to tell my employees, unfortunately, before the holidays, uh, you no longer have a job. Uh, so it's been a, a trying year, that's for sure. Uh, David, I have, I have friends who are in the restaurant business and typically they say over the last year, they've lost about 40% of their revenue because of uh, COVID. Is that accurate? I'm not looking for actual figures here, but does that sound about right from what you can tell around the industry, not just your places, but everywhere in Western New York? Yeah, everywhere. I think it could be higher than that. Um, we were about 35 to 40%. Um, I've had friends that haven't opened since um, March. So they've lost obviously a hundred percent. But uh, it's, it's been a, a tough, a tough road. You know, we were able to keep our heads above the water and keep our key employees uh, employed doing takeout at all the restaurants and found some success there. Certainly nothing that could compare to being open for regular business, but uh, we were at least able to stay relevant. And uh, when we were able to reopen in June, we just hired our great staff back and, uh, and, and went after it again. So it wasn't so bad. I'm haunted by a, a quote that I read in the newspaper by a friend of mine. Uh, you may know him, Joe Yurgi, who runs Mulberry in Lackawanna, who was oh, quoted in the paper. He, he was saying, if we get shut down again, that would be it. I'd just shut right down. If the state comes in and, and forces us to suspend business for a while, we couldn't survive. Do you think a lot of places are in that sort of quandary? There's definitely, uh, I would say, 25 to 40% um, of restaurants in the area are probably not going to reopen. Um, and they haven't all re reopened already. Um, so I think it's, it has been de detrimental. Um, but, you know, we'll see if we can survive. I think the, the smaller mom and pop ones are the ones I think are going to get hit the hardest. We're kind of a mid-tier uh, group, so uh, we're able to survive, uh, but not much longer. So. Yeah, and there's a lot of recent publicity about a curfew, a 10 p.m. curfew. There have been lawsuits and uh, appeals decisions on this. Uh, do you have a position on that? Were you involved in any of these lawsuits to, to, to lift the 10 p.m. curfew? You know, I, I wasn't um, part of the lawsuits, but certainly uh, part of the Western New York Coalition and uh, stay very active with that group. Um, I was, you know, with a couple other friends considering an, a, another lawsuit, uh, but we decided to pull back because this one was going through, uh, which we thank everybody who did that um, to, to push the governor to, to make the decision to say, please get back open. Uh, the 10 o'clock curfew obviously is 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 ridiculous. Uh, it's arbitrary. It, it has no basis for, um, you know, health of Western New York and the people and COVID. And I mean, right at 10.01, you know, all of a sudden the COVID ghosts come through the dining room and, and start infecting people. Right. I mean, <laughs> I understand maybe the, the philosophy is the state doesn't want to see, you know, large gatherings of young kids and you're, you know, as, you, as the evening gets later, your, your inhibitions go down and, um, but I don't think 10 o'clock, I still, we still see our dining rooms at eight thirty nine o'clock and we're supposed to tell our guests to, you know, finish up and cause it's gotta be lights out at 10. So it's just not, not hospitality the way I like to see it. And I think right. it has no relevance to the health and welfare of our, of our guests. Last thing I have for you, David, what's it, what responsibility do you feel as the, uh, as the man who runs a, you know, a major restaurant group in Western New York, uh, both to get through COVID and, and just, for the future of Western New York, I mean, uh, you know, you have three major properties here in the Buffalo area. Uh, where are you going with it and, and where does the industry go, do you think? And once you get through COVID, I guess would be the right way to look at that. Sure. I think my, my first responsibility is, is to my staff uh, who've been loyal to me for some 25 years. A lot of them are, you know, eight years at Oliver's and, and beyond. Um, so my first responsibility is to maintain uh, relevance and, and staying open and uh, 
being able to provide jobs for, my, for these great people. Uh, the second thing is I think the, the, the community relies on us. You know, if Oliver's and uh, Creekview have been iconic restaurants for years, uh, if they were to shut down, I think it would be a big hole in the, in the uh, dining experience for the Western New York community. So um, I, I think I'm very positive, very optimistic. I always have been. Um, and now I think we can kind of see a light, although it's, you know, not as bright as we'd like to see it at this right. point, but you know, it's still coming, you know, we will be get vaccinated. We will get reopened and, uh, we will get back to business. And I think, you know, if we can play that position and, and, uh, and, and continue to develop and build and invest in our, uh, our properties and our, and our staff, I think we're going to be around for a long time. Your point about, uh, important to the community. I, I, obviously I agree with you about Western New York. I was thinking of, I'm reading the New York times a lot recently about how important restaurants are to even a major city like New York. They sort of they define communities in the city of New York. And, and that goes uh, both here in Buffalo and in major cities like New York. Restaurants really tell you what kind of community you're in and what kind of community it is, don't they? Absolutely. Um, and I worked in New York City for, for five years and it was such a, a part of the everyday fabric of, the, of, the, of everyday life for people. Um, and one of my mentors, Joe Baum, I worked with at the Rainbow Room um, back in the day, he, he told me, it, and he was very um, eloquent with the way he spoke. Uh, but he said, you know, people don't go to dinner because they're hungry. They go to be entertained. And it's an experience. And it's so true. And they want to be around people. And especially with COVID, it's, it's probably hit everybody really hard, especially in New York. My son lives there. and It's just not, not even close to the same as it used to be. Um, but I, I think we can, uh, we can get through this. We'll get back to being a big part of people's daily lives. And, and uh, I, I agree. It's it's certainly a big part of the community and definitely defines uh, areas for sure. David, good luck with Oliver's, with Creepview, and with uh, Brightsmith. And thanks very much for doing this with us. You're welcome, Murph. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Well, thanks for tuning in to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. Happy to have you with us. We are sponsored by Sullivan's Brewing Company, the makers of Sullivan's Malting's Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. It's available all over Buffalo and upstate New York in bars and taverns and pubs and in the stores, in the grocery stores as well. It's available in New York City, Long Island, New Jersey, Atlanta and Savannah, Georgia, Pittsburgh, Youngstown, Cleveland, Ohio. Ask for Sullivan's. We're getting bigger, getting bigger all over the country. So ask for Sullivan's. They just may have it. Going to put the podcast to the side for a couple of weeks now with the start of the NFL offseason. We're about a month away to the start of a new league year, mid-March. That happens to be a good time for Sullivan's Brewing also, St. Patrick's Day. So look for another kickoff podcast around the middle of March. We'll talk about NFL free agency, what moves the Bills have made, what they should make, and we'll talk about St. Patrick's Day also in the beer business and how it pertains to Sullivan's. Hey, you're welcome to provide input for our podcast as well. Just shoot us an email. Send an email to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff at gmail.com. It's one word, Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff at gmail.com. Give us ideas for guests, topics to talk about, questions you may have about beer or the uh, NFL, your critiques, your ideas. We'll take them all. We may even read them on the show. want to thank our guests in this podcast, Bill Barnwell of ESPN.com, NFL writer. He's been around the league for a while, takes a new and sort of innovative take on uh, what's going on in the NFL. Great to hear from him again. And Dave Schutte of the Schutte Hospitality Group in Buffalo, the man behind Bright Smith Brewing, brand new on Main Street in Williamsville, the Creekview Restaurant right next door, and Oliver's on Delaware Avenue. I want to thank our producer, Pat Feldball, as well. We'll see you next time right here on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You've been listening to John Murphy and the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the bills and the beer.